Welcome to the show, everybody. Fantastic episode. One of my heroes. I love what I do. I love this podcast so much because I get this opportunity to meet my heroes like today. By the way, if I got to repeat myself a couple times or whatever, it's because he's a little hard of hearing and I forgot he has one ear that doesn't work and I forgot my headphones and so we did it without headphones. So there was a, a little bit of straining to hear me talk without me talking too loud and screwing up the sound and everything, but I think it all came out really nicely and I'm so happy that I get to do this. I'm thankful for you guys. I've been having one of those weeks where I haven't been able to do anything. I just been once in a while I'm just like paralyzed. I've been reading and writing and I was going through a period where I wasn't doing much reading and writing and I was just doing like emails and administrative stuff and then it just swung back the opposite way and recording these intros, recording the ads and stuff. Sometimes I just, I get paralyzed. I can't do it. As easy as this would be, this is the easiest part of the podcast. It's this few minutes when I just got to say a little something, talk about how I got stand-up science coming uh, coming your way to check out shanemoss.com. We have, I think, 40 dates on there now. And that's this tremendous undertaking. And I was just thinking about um, you know, the difficulties of booking two scientists and a second comedian on every single show for stand-up science. And I just started feeling overwhelmed. And the meanwhile, I'm in Jamaica and it's the ocean and a tropical paradise and I'm hanging out in a hammock and man, no, no better place to feel anxious and stressed. I'll tell you that much. But it's been real hard to get you know when you can do all the work that you don't need done, <laughs> you can do that no problem. That's what this last uh, like ten days has been like for me. Like the simplest things that need to get done are just near impossible for me, and uh, the other stuff that's in the periphery, um, that's what that's what I'm consuming my time with. But it's all valuable in the end. It's all as long as I keep on grinding. As long as you're doing something beneficial, uh, I. I think it's all of value and then I broke down I don't watch TV much on the road and I I watched a couple episodes of uh, the show maniac on Netflix I don't like getting into it I get sucked in and I'll binge them and but I watched a couple episodes and uh, and just turned off my noggin for a little bit Whew, woke up today feeling recharged. Sometimes you need that. The very stuff that you usually got to stay away from and monitor. Sometimes you just need to indulge a little bit and recharge. And that is how I'm feeling today. So I apologize for the delay with this episode, which is, um, man, uh, uh, again, such a privilege. One of my heroes in science. And I hope you guys enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I have a very special episode for you guys. I've come a long ways to do this podcast. I'm sitting here in Jamaica with, obviously, the foundation of this podcast has been, through the years, a lot of evolutionary theory, and it's it's kind of the main thing that you guys write in about that you're interested in. We've had so many guests on, and uh, my guest today has been absolutely fundamental, so influential in our modern understanding of evolutionary theory when uh, he started his work the way that we understood evolution was so much different than our understanding now because of the work that he has done and he's been cited uh, more more than anyone I've ever had on this podcast I imagine Uh, please welcome to the show Robert Tribbers thank you thank you Robert so first of all first question that listeners are going to want to know. Why are you in Jamaica? What brings you to Jamaica in the first place? Well, I came here uh, 50 years ago, and uh, my advisor at Harvard uh, was a lizard freak. He was the world's expert on all the lizards where the male has a dewlap or a tongue, as they say in Jamaica. That's an ex- expandable sort of fan with which he displays both towards females uh, in courtship and males aggressively. And the genus is Anolis. And back then it went from Florida all the way to Brazil, and there were 200 species. Many of them spread throughout the islands. So there are 21 species in Cuba, 7 in Jamaica, 20 in Hispaniola, and in all the small islands. Now with global warming... Anolis is found as far north as North Carolina. Uh, now, I was not a lizard freak. My teacher, who taught me evolutionary theory and thinking, thinking, I would say, Bill Drury, was an ornithologist. So I was a bird freak, and I had my life list of 340 species of birds, and I watched birds a lot with him. I also was close friends with Herb DeVore at Harvard, who was a monkey man, so I watched baboons in East Africa. I went to Jane Goodall's uh, camp in Tanzania. I was there, in fact, the day Flo died. I studied uh, Langer monkeys in uh, India. So he brought me down here on a collecting expedition for a week. I wanted to go to Barrow, Colorado Island and watch uh, monkeys, but that would have been very foolish because it turns out you would have seen them at a distance of 60 feet uh, up in the air, and uh, you would be looking for testicles, because uh, when a monkey passed overhead and you saw testicles, you'd write down male. But that's all you would see or know about him. So he gave me every argument for coming to Jamaica, including the fact that there was a fossil monkey, and he knew very well that I was only interested in animal behavior, so there's a limited amount of behavior you can get from fossils. But never mind. I came down here because he wanted a driver. He was on a collecting expedition for the Museum of Comparative Zoology, collecting lizards for their collections. He had a Jamaican driver, but with me, he would have a, a less expensive driver who was a bright graduate student that he could chat biology with all day long. So I took one look at the social life, and I took one look at the island, and I decided if I had to molest lizards, 
to pay for <laughs> frequent trips to Jamaica, I would humble myself and become a lizard man. And that's exactly what I did. And uh, I uh, set up a long-term project where I had to come down every three or four months and recapture, which gave me survival, growth rate, blah, blah, blah. Now, at Harvard at the time, uh, you could not do a theoretical thesis as I was doing without also doing one chapter that w dealt with the real world, empirical. So that was either a lab project or a field project. I was not about to spend any time indoors in a lab. So my project was on a giant uh, anolis lizard in Jamaica, a green lizard, and that's what I did my thesis on. Nobody had ever studied a giant lizard. And I'm deathly afraid of heights for a very good reason. I'm very absent-minded. And I would plummet out of a tree in no time. So I employed 13- and 14-year-old young men who were no longer in school but uh, were dying to or very happy to earn good money collecting lizards. Later, I'm either married onto the island or stole a woman off the island, depending on which Jamaican expression you like. And I was given an acre and a quarter of land, and that I've expanded into six acres now. When I won the Crawford Prize 11 years ago, I peeled off $100,000 and bought myself four more acres. And I keep it as a nature preserve. Uh, I don't cut down trees like Jamaicans do. I plant them. So anyway, that's Jamaica. Mm -hmm. And I'm deeply involved in the place. Indeed, I'm a permanent resident now. In any case, what was the theoretical work? What was I interested yeah. in doing? Well, uh, 1969, uh, W.D. Hamilton had just published Kinship Theory in 64, which said that uh, natural selection did not only favor you maximizing your surviving offspring or reproductive success, as I call it, it also maximize your production of relatives as devalued by your degree relatives to them. So in theory, it was possible for you to have more genetic success by adding brothers and sisters to the world than children, because you're equally related. If they're full, full brothers and sisters, you're related to them by a half, same as you are to children. So that was, uh, that was exciting. Because that showed evolutionary theory was highly relevant to social behavior, in this case, uh, relatives. Now, there were two or three other famous important findings. Uh, R.A. Fisher in 1930 proved that the two sexes were under equally strong selection with his sex ratio theory. He also put age into the equation, his so-called reproductive value. Uh, your reproductive value is highest just before you start reproducing. Uh, reproductive value being your future expected reproductive success. So we had age, we had sex, uh, ratio, and we had kinship. But we had nothing else because most of the 110 years since Darwin had been devoted to species advantage thinking that traits evolved for the good of the species. But that's nonsense. Traits evolve for the good of the individuals with the traits. It may or may not benefit the species, but it sure as hell better increase your chance of surviving and reproducing. And we believe 
that natural selection has acted, now we know, 3.8 billion years, and it's woven together uh, genes that contribute to survival and reproduction. And that's what we've been created out of. So in any case, I turn to other topics. So one that occurred to me right away is, is friendship. I said, well, wait a second, friends are sometimes as important as relatives. Indeed, when you're an adult, uh, you often have closer friends than you do relatives, mm -hmm. especially in a modern society where you're mobile and, you know, your sister may live in, in New Jersey and you live in New York and your brother lives in Ohio and so forth and so on, whereas your, your, your friends are close by. A lot of people don't even get along with their family. Ah, that's a very, very <laughs> good point. You, as I like to say, you choose your friends. You are stuck with your relatives. <laughs> so that's a very good point. And uh, another good point, by the way, since we're on a subject, is your, your relatives have a self-interest in you, which your friends lack because of the same kinship theory. Mm -hmm. So let's say it's the 80s and you're snorting cocaine <laughs> and you're otherwise living a stupid life. And trust me, I've been through all of that and come out the other end rather quickly. Check out Bob's book, Wildlife, by the way. By they, the way, they could do that if they wanted. Yeah, they should. Yeah, there's very little of the snorting in there, but uh, <laughs> there is my friendship with Huey Newton and and other kinds of stuff. In any case, you could have your brother come to you, let's say, and get on your case and say, "Well, now wait a second, you're effing up, <laughs> and you're harming us, and it's not just you're harming the Trivers name and." and they carry the same name, you're directly harming their inclusive fitness by lowering your own reproductive success. That's not true of friends. So friends are more apt to be compassionate, I've found, and I know you want to come back to self-deception, so let me just slip in something here about friends. Friends are often very wise at advising you regarding your own behavior because they do care for you, and they may love you and like you, but uh, they're independent. They don't suffer what you suffer. So I'll give you an example. I was telling a friend of mine, it's a Jamaican-American friend about eight, eight, ten years ago, that I was, he said, what are you up to? He said, I'm about to call this woman and tell her off. So he said, why are you going to do that? I said, because she left me a nasty message on my machine. So he said, yeah, but why leave her a nasty one back? She's only going to leave a nastier one still back on yours. <laughs> what do you gain from it? And I said, it hurt me. He said, so what? And that was very valuable to me. So what indeed? Mm. I was making what's called the sunk cost fallacy. Ah, uh, yeah. Right? Right. You've already lost uh, whatever she's done. You've already suffered the pain. So your uh, friend had this objective view because they don't have the they don't share the same genes and so they were able to call your BS a little bit better for your benefit. Well, you could put it that way, but they also they did not suffer the pain. Right. Right. Now in theory, yes. In theory a sibling could also uh since they didn't suffer the pain be more objective, but they are linked to you. Uh, so they're going to be less objective than a friend. Mm -hmm. But a friend is more objective about your own, 
own suffering and the appropriate response than you are. All right, so forget it. So I say to myself, well, friends are as important as uh, kin in, in many circumstances, so how do we model that? Well, if kinship was the key to friends, uh, to relatives, then re reciprocity was the key to friendship, in my opinion. I do something nice for you, you do something nice back. Now, that's, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But in nature, sometimes that scratching is simultaneous. So there's not much of a problem of a cheater. But in a friendship, I can do something nice for you, and then it'll be a week or two before you do it back. So do you? You know, you might be dead, you might have migrated, but more importantly, you might be a non-reciprocator, what you could call a cheater. And so automatically when you start to think about cheating, uh, sorry, friendship, you also had to think about cheating and non-reciprocal relations. So you could, um, you could lend your friend your car. And then one day you ask to borrow $20 and he says, uh, no, Bob, I don't believe in lending money between friends because it destroys friendship. And then I say, wait a second, mofo, <laughs> I've lent you my car and you're telling me you're not willing to lend me $20? So I worked out a whole little dynamic for how it would work. Uh, gross cheaters are individuals that just don't reciprocate at all. Those are easy to spot and it's easy to handle. You just stop acting nice toward them. Subtle cheaters are those that reciprocate, but not as much as you would if the shoe were on the other foot. So you're lose, you're gaining, but not as much as you ought to be. So that leads to a sense of fairness. A sense of fairness is not going to usually be selected for in relations between relatives, but between reciprocating friends, absolutely. A sense of fairness and then writ more largely a sense of justice i i've noticed uh, i remember having a roommate and i would buy him lunches once in a while and at, at first if he didn't reciprocate it didn't seem like that big of a deal but after time it made me feel like i was uh, i was being used and it, it, it to him it didn't seem like that big of a deal either but it eventually kind of tore our friendship apart a little bit because of my judgment on him there you go yeah there you go so, so I wrote a paper that was almost entirely based on humans because there weren't any good examples of reciprocity in other creatures. Indeed, if you looked at the literature, Darwin and George Williams both considered reciprocity, but they limited it to species that had the ability to recognize individuals, remember the past, Remember who had done what in the past to them so as to adjust things. And they made that a prerequisite for reciprocal altruism, so they expected it to be rare. I said, no, that's a fundamental error. It's not a prerequisite. It's something that evolves after the fact. So all you have to do is start, if it's you and me, all we have to do is be in a situation where we can confer benefits uh, to each other at a cost. I can and get your books out to the general public and I get a free education out of this deal. 
<laughs> All right, maybe. Uh, I, I like the sound of that, but uh, uh, yes, the the point is that you could almost have a, a random world uh, with a small enough group where you just happen to get tra you know tr trade benefits, and then afterwards, now you start evolving to discriminate precisely to avoid being cheated. Now you want to remember who's who. Now I want to remember, hey, Shane is a pretty good guy. You know, you can extend him a little bit more, and so forth and so on. So anyway, at the same time, I was watching pigeons uh, because my teacher was a bird man. He told me, watch pigeons. He said, uh, they're ugly, and uh, so no ornithologist watches them, and they're easy to watch. You can watch them right out uh, your window of your apartment in Cambridge. So I did, and then I noticed in the pigeons that they had the same double standard we have. They are highly monogamous species uh, in the sense of couples stay together for life or pretty much always for life, but the male is jealous about his female and whether she's giving away any pum pum, we would say in, in Jamaica, <laughs> whether she's giving away any sex to another male and at the same time, he's out hustling other females himself. So I used to know them well enough because another thing that Bill taught me was, he said, look, I said, I'll work on the, on the, um, you know, lesser marsh wren. And he said, look, Bob, it'll take you a year to locate them. It'll take you a second year to acclimate them to you so they'll stand you being around. It'll take a third year for you to capture and mark them. Fourth year, you'll start observing them. He said, pigeons, because you see, city pigeons are all escaped from back when we were breeding them. So that's why they have such a variety of colors, black, white, mixed, and so on. Interesting. And therefore, he said, pigeons can be recognized. Most of them can be recognized at sight. You just got to learn how to recognize them. And you don't have to, and they're all used to human beings. You don't have to acclimate them. And... So on. So I was watching these pigeons and I was seeing this sexual jealousy. And I could give you examples of it, but I'll skip it unless you want to hear it. And yet at the same time that the male's acting very jealous towards her, when she's sitting on the eggs, he's in the park hustling other females. How did I know? Because I'm in the park and I know him. And I, <laughs> I know that guy, that player. Yes, exactly. So anyway, so then I just, I just rolled along. I did parent-offspring conflict. I did a paper on, on when parents are more apt to produce sons versus daughters. And I did a famous paper on social insects, which have an unusual genetic system. The only mistake I made was that I was due to give a talk on deceit and self-deception in 78 at the Proceedings of Royal Society in England. And I didn't go, but that didn't mean I couldn't have written a paper. That was a stupid mistake. Although the reason for it was that my wife was pregnant with twins and she gave birth on December 22nd. And that was exactly the time I was supposed to be in England uh, at the conference, so naturally, I did not go to the conference. Um, also, the British are cheap as hell, so they 
Royal Academy would pay your flight to England, but not your flight back. As if, hey, you're in the United Kingdom. Why would you want to leave? <laughs> uh, and if you do want to leave, you pay yourself. So anyway, but that didn't mean that I couldn't have disciplined myself to write the damn paper. And then I would have, you know, then it'd be a huge literature now on deceit and self-deception. Because if you write a fundamental paper, however brief, uh, it'll generate uh, a literature. So anyway, I'll just say one last thing and then I'll get, get to your questions. Uh, it's, it's often true, Shane, that scientists, after 10 or 15 years on one area, they, they would kind of like to shift a bit. And the same thing happened with me. I wrote a, a textbook, which was ridiculous as a textbook because it was uh, way beyond teachers. And the last thing teachers want is a book that has question, has material in it that they can't explain. So it, it nosedived and never sold anything. Now it's cited over 3,000 times because it's still very valuable. Social Evolution it was published in 85. So that's 15 years from reciprocal altruism to social evolution. And I was tired of the topic. So I decided to work on something that I had taken up in that book briefly, and that was selfish genetic elements. That is, these are genes inside you which do not contribute to your reproductive success. All they do is contribute to their own replication, and they're a disadvantage to you as an individual but they are selected for because they benefit themselves. It's a huge field now. And it took me nearly 15 years of my life with a very bright, very hardworking co-author, Austin Burt. And we published it in 2006. So that was a massive piece of work. You know, can, can you explain uh, the the mechanisms, how, how this takes place? Could you, could you give listeners a, a summary of some of that work? Well, there's a whole series of mechanisms, but I'll just mention two. The initial ones that caught people's attention were uh, genes that drove during male uh, meiosis. So the T haplotype located on the 17th chromosome of the mouse uh, is able to put out a poison which tends to disable the paired sperm cell that lacks the T, and yet the T has an antidote to the poison. So all of those systems are poison antidote. Mm. You produce a poison, but you have an antidote yourself. And most people don't know that sperm cells are, uh, most biologists don't know that uh, you start with a single one, you end up with 64, but they're connected by these little cellular tubes uh, while they're developing. So if you're producing a poison, it's going down these cellular tubes and it's affecting any sperm cell that lacks the antidote. So then 90% or 95% of the progeny have the T haplotype. So now it's almost doubled in frequency just by that selfish trick. Ah, so... Uh, excuse me, I might make a real fool out of myself here. No but, problem. But... Uh, so are you saying like an individual sperm, because it has the antidote, can 
poison its competition? Yes. Oh, wow. That is fascinating. Yes, and we can also show that it's not perfect, so it suffers a bit from what it is doing. Hmm. So it is a genuinely selfish genetic element in that, in that uh, it's, it's, it's a bit worse off, huh. and the organism is worse off for having it compared to the mice where both sperm cells are normal. Ah. Okay. Huh. Now that's, so that's one category, and we've got more and more examples of it. Today's Brief Attention Reprieve is brought to you by Robinhood. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. They strive to make the financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. Non-intimidating way for stock market newcomers to invest for the first time with true confidence. Simple and intuitive, clear design with data presented in an easy-to-digest way. We all need that. Remember, there is no commission fees. Other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, but Robinhood doesn't charge commission fees, trade stocks, and you keep all of your profits. And the design and the ease of use is absolutely crucial. Easy to understand charts and market data. Place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. So go to Robinhood. Here we are. Robinhood.com. Robinhood is giving listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help build your portfolio. Sign up at here we are dot robinhood.com that's here we are dot robinhood.com now another category which is everywhere are so-called transposable elements now their trick is that they can make a copy of themselves inside your genome and insert that copy elsewhere in the genome mobile so, dna yes exactly mobile dna they used to be called jumping genes, uh, but they're called transposable elements now. They transpose, and they produce a chemical called transposase that allows them to transpose. And then after 4,000 generations, uh, they both transpose again, mm. uh, both it and the progeny. So in a short number of, uh, you know, a couple million years, it can go from a very low frequency to everybody has 25 copies. Hmm. And if you check our genome, well, it gets, it gets stopped eventually, partly because it's self-defeating, namely uh, you will get transposable elements that are no longer capable of transposing themselves. But the ones that are produce transposase and that's in the cell, so they cause the de defective ones to transpose also. So as time goes by, you have more and more transposable elements that are no longer capable of transposing. They're defective, hmm. but they've spread, and they gradually crowd out the ones that still transpose. Hmm. So... What what are your feelings about the so-called uh, junk DNA? The the idea that like ninety eight percent of our DNA isn't really doing anything is is that possible? 
Well, yes, but it's it's slightly different than what you say. First of all, the 98% comes from the discovery that, that about 2% of our DNA makes proteins um, and apparently adaptive. Now, another 2.5%, I would say 2.5%, another 2.5% makes messenger RNA that is highly conserved, which means it's serving a function, and messenger RNA is used to control uh, DNA and cause it to have this or that effect. So 5% of our DNA is functional. Now, 50% uh, of our DNA are what's called fossil transposable elements. That is, they used to transpose, but they don't transpose anymore. Ah. But we can recognize from their structure that they are transposable elements. Now, they degenerate with time because anything that is not replicating but is uh, otherwise neutral or something, it degenerates. It, 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 when it gets a new mutation, that doesn't cause it to become less frequent because it's, it's not doing anything anyway. Hmm. So after, you know, 200 million years, you may not be able to recognize that this stretch of DNA was originally a transposable element. Hmm. But we do know that roughly 45, 50% of our DNA is what we call fossil transposable elements, meaning they no longer transpose, but they did once upon a time. Ah. And that's why they spread. Hmm. Uh, so, yes. Uh, then you have the remaining DNA. There's a, that's more complicated, but uh, you have some very, very foolish, stupid molecular biologists that don't know evolutionary logic. Uh, there was one recent paper that, you know, got everybody uh, excited for a while. It said, no, this junk DNA uh, is nonsense because 85% of DNA has just the structure you'd expect if it's actually uh, coding for something. Yes, mofo. Uh, and, <laughs> and most of that is coding for transposing. Right. You see? I see. So it ain't, it's, 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 it's junk or it's worse than junk, you mm. know? Do we have anything that resembles a fossil kind of trait, any kind of byproduct, any evolutionary leftovers that maybe aren't uh, kind of, the idea of like a QWERTY, um, uh, the, the keyboard, how, how it was made that certain way for typewriters so that the, the letters didn't get bunched up. But now if we wanted to make the keyboard more efficient, we could, but it's just that we're used to using the, the same keyboard that we've always used and changing it would have more of a cost than uh, uh, than just keeping it the same. Do we have anything like that? Well, I think so, Shane, but I would... Um, we have an extra bone or two in our tail, okay? And that's because we used to have a tail. Mm -hmm. And sometimes this damn thing is a bump. Yeah. And it's, it's a pain to sit on the bump. Right. And then you can have, in my lineage, for some reason, we have an extra bone. Mm. So we're a little bit more monkey than you are. <laughs> Unless you have the same extra bone. I, 
<laughs> I'm not familiar. I, I don't know. Maybe I do. You you wouldn't know. <laughs> you would know, brother. You see this? You see this pad I'm sitting on? Oh yeah. That's partly because of it. Oh. Um. So yes. Um. Hmm. There are all sorts of. Um. As I used to amuse myself with Jamaican men pointing it out, nobody, uh, I say nobody, t- typically nobody knows this even herpetologist. All lizards and all snakes have not one dick, if I may use that term. You I sure can. I find penis ugly. So <laughs> anyway, all lizards and snakes have two dicks, not one. So each one has a testicle or testes associated with it. Mm. Now, what happened was during our development, mammals at some point, the two uh, uh, penises fused. And if you want to check on it, take your own dick sometime and peel it up like so to reveal the underside and you'll see a little line. Yeah. Right. And that line is left over from early in development, uh, probably second month or something like that inside your mother. Wow. Yes, when the fusion actually took place. I'll never look at my dick the same. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Uh, Whether you can get someone else to enjoy it is up to you. you. Still working on it. It's still working on it. There you you go, Shane. So (laughs) I like that. So anyway... Uh, yes. So then both of our testes were then inside a single, you know, seed bag, as they call it in Jamaica. So they're, they're in the same scrotum. Uh, but originally they came, uh, originally they were associated with each, uh, dick. Now, uh, green lizards are large enough so that you can extrude the hemipenes as I've done. And you can show them to Jamaican men, and they're just flabbergasted, you know. Them say, wah, him have two woods, one for the yard and one for the road. Because he thinks, the Jamaican men think, <laughs> damn, this is heaven. There's no way you can bring uh, a disease home to the <laughs> wife that gives you away. Because you're not using that wood. Right. You saved that one for her. Sure. And I'm looking at them and I'm saying to myself, it's not that easy, fellas. <laughs> because if you check the anatomy, Shane, the penis external, of course, but then it continues down inside you internally uh-huh. and the two get closer and closer. So down at the bottom of the, of the dick, inside you, it's just a matter of a couple of millimeters away from the one next door. Uh-huh. So if you don't think a bacteria that you catch out on a road cannot evolve the capacity to cross two right. millimeters in order to double its chance of transmission, yeah. you don't know nothing about bacterial evolution. So I just laugh when I was watching yeah. these Jamaican men think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need one that just falls off right afterwards and then regrows. That, that would be the trick. <laughs> Maybe. What's this? A penis falls off and regrows? <laughs> yeah. If Oh, my God, Shane. <laughs> to, to, pre- to prevent diseases. Let me go get you a drink. <laughs> 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 uh, 
<laughs> just thinking out loud of what evolution could do to prevent diseases probably wouldn't work out that way yeah so uh, uh so okay uh, we we were talking about social evolution then disadvantage uh, disadvantageous genes and then and that leads us to that was 2006 i believe when that influential work came out yeah. and uh and then i i love that you talked about having these shifts because i've had similar shifts and uh, i gained kind of mastery over my craft as a stand-up comedian in my early 20s and i wanted to explore things with more depth and that's why i started talking with scientists and right and my interests have changed over years and i've, I've been able to abandon some of my old work and take interest in new things and right they all kind of lead into one another a little bit so so what was what was the next phase in your in your research after that time well i returned to deceit and self-deception i i had the insight the basic insight that self-deception evolves in the service of deceit, that the major function of self-deception is a better to fool others. And I got that way back in the 70s, and I put it into the uh, foreword I wrote for Richard Dawkins' Selfish Gene, because I was very slow back then, and it took me four weeks to write a foreword. And I said, Jesus Christ, you've thrown away four weeks, and all it is a foreword for someone else's book. Uh, can't you put something of value in there? So I said, okay, I'll put my theory of self-deception in there. So there's a sentence in there that gives the argument that self-deception, I said something about the notion that, uh, you know, our cognitive abilities evolve just to spot the truth or whatnot is very naive. And then I gave the self-deception in the service of deceit. Now, psychologists typically run it the other way around, uh, first of all, they have correlational data, mostly. They don't have cause and effect, and they are happy to forget that correlations can go in either direction, or thirdly, they can both uh, result from a third force that's causing each one independently. So there are three possibilities when you have a correlation, not just one. But they tend to believe that self-deception exists to protect the ego, to protect us from pain, to, you know, that kind of protection stuff. In other words, not outwardly directed, but inwardly directed, inwardly defensive. Mine was, no, it's outwardly aggressive. Um, and if you look at Freud... Freud had some brilliant mechanisms of self-deception, uh, repression, uh, denial, uh, ego defense mechanisms, projection, denial, ego defense mechanisms. Uh, there was one other one that I'm, it's not coming to my brain right now. That's okay. Speaking of cocaine use, <laughs> we bring up Freud. Yes, indeed. <laughs> indeed, I often say that. So on that side, he was good. I thought he was very bright. But then, then he had a theory for human development, uh, anal oral Oedipal. That's just, that was while he was uh, snorting too much cocaine. That's not a theory for human development. There, we did not know enough back then to have a theory for human development. 
mm. early development. We still barely do. Mm. Uh, so th- that he was that he was wrong on, uh, I think. And then ego, uh, id, and superego. Those are metaphors, you know. Those aren't uh, precise entities or anything. So and also he made the classic mistake. Uh, he decided when he was, you know, he was in Vienna. His patients were middle-class women, and a surprising number were, and hysteria was the major symptom. They're hysterical. That's disappeared for some reason. But in any case, uh, they would come to him, and they would talk about their uncle groping them in a passageway. Or, you know, it was sexual molestation, but it wasn't the extreme form. It wasn't even as bad as priests, you know. And... Uh, but he made a famous mistake. He decided that it could not be this frequent among people of this class. So he ended up blaming the victim. He said that their problem was an unresolved Oedipal complex. That is, they wanted it. They are fantasizing having an uncle grope them. That's, that's dead wrong, you know. So that shows you that a master of mechanisms of self-deception could get the whole argument upside down. Mm-hmm. Uh, in any case, um, so could you maybe give us a, an example of of some of the uh, self-deception, uh, like a, a study of self-deception? Yes, let me give you what I think is the best example. Uh, there's a well-known uh, tendency for people to put them on the themselves in the upper half of a beneficial category. Uh, so, eighty percent of high school students in the U.S. say they're in the top half of leadership ability. Well, it's not possible, but you cannot beat academics for self-deception. Ninety-four percent of academics say they're in the half top half of the profession. Okay, again, it's not possible. Now, if you ask us for good looks, at least 70% of us would say we're in the top half for good looks. You know, you're better than average, aren't you? Uh, sure. Yeah. damn right. Yeah. And, so am I. Uh, <laughs> Here, you know, let's shake hands on that. <laughs> All right, fine. So so here's, here's the work they did, which is so beautiful. Epley and Whitchurch, they, they did this for both men and women. And they would take a picture of Whitchurch, which is a woman, strip her of all her hair, give her a neutral expression, and then they would morph it in the direction of better looking or or uglier. To morph it in the direction of better looking, they would combine her face with 10% of a very good looking face itself chosen out of a larger sample and blah, blah, blah. And then they would add 20% or 30% all the way up to half and half. Or they would morph her face with someone with craniofacial syndrome, which is something that would uh, misshape your face. So you got uglier and uglier. All right, now you got a, a row of these. So then they ran the following experiment, and they did the same thing for for Epley, who's a man. But let's say they're going to run the experiment on you now. They 
Take a photo of you, strip them of your hair, morph it. Both directions. Now they take three photos. The real you, 20% better looking, and 20% uglier. <laughs> you know the work? Yes, I do. Yeah. Okay, fine. I, I, I think it's I think it's the best single study of it, you know. Well, it, you, you know it from Absolutely. Yeah, in any it's case. Fascinating. Right. In any case, now it's it's a very simple test. And one reason why I like it is it's not just questionnaire answering behavior correlated with questionnaire answering behavior. Right. That's what a lot of social psychology is. Uh, no. Uh, what they did was to, sh to show you uh, 12 pictures at the same time, one of which is you. And all you got to do is as soon as you spot your face, hit this button with your right hand and then point to your, the picture with your left hand. That controlled for errors. Now, all they're measuring is speed of recognition. So this is not no correlation thing, you know, a verbal correlation. This is speed of recognition. So what they discovered was that you were fastest at recognizing the 20% better looking you, 5% slower to recognize the real you, and 5% slower still to recognize the uglier you. Your own face that you look at in the mirror every day. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Then they did a couple of nice follow-up studies. They showed pictures of you individually, not, not all 11 at once, but individually in random order, and they just said, pick out the real you. People picked out disproportionately 20% uh, better looking as the real you. It goes up 10% is more frequent than expected. 20% is a real bump. 30% is starting to come down. On the ugly side, uh, they, you don't think any of them are you. All right. So uh, then, and that's incidentally why they use 20% in the first experiment. Then they also asked them, which one do you like better? And again, it's roughly 20%. In fact, it's 30% you like better. And all the uh, uglier ones you like less, less well. So that I thought was an, a nifty demonstration of the fact that uh, our tendency to overrate ourselves can serve a function in the sense that uh, we naturally view ourselves as better looking, then you have to add, you have to add the following assumption. And I can ask you, I mean, I, I feel so. If I walk into a room and I think I'm good looking, I believe I project a slightly better looking he than if I walk in the room feeling I'm neutral or ugly. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know because I go on stage in front of crowds of people and first impressions are a very important thing. And I've had to tweak over, over the years. If I put my hair this way, if I wear this sort of thing, how, how do I look the best? How do I give the best impression? And when I feel like I have given the best impression, I'm more, I'm more confident 
in my delivery, in my material, my voice doesn't close up so much. I don't feel the nerves as much. It makes all the difference. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. By the way, this is a side comment, but I, sure. think, I think of it often for some reason lately when this comes up. If you look at, if you look at all women and, and you have their other people's evaluations of their looks from not so good looking to very good looking, yes, uh, there's a tendency the better looking you are to more heavily evaluate yourself as good looking. Mm. Now you do reach a point about 20% up from really ugly where you cross the line and now you evaluate yourself as being less good looking than on average. Mm. So well, what's that condition? Beg your pardon? Can you can you uh, repeat that condition for that? They are just looking at their own face oh. and asking if if they're better looking on average or not. Remember it's it's if if it's seventy percent or eighty percent of us that say we're better looking, that does mean there's twenty percent that's gonna say we're not better looking. Now Does that correlate with like what we call low self esteem? It probably does, and I'm not up to date on it. I just know that to me, I remember when I read about that at the time, I said, you know, when I would meet women that had a low self-esteem, you know, it was a turnoff, a real turnoff. And what I would say to myself, this is when I was a young man, what I would say to myself is, look, she's known herself for 28 years. I've only known herself for two weeks. She must know better than me. It was really a sexual, physical turnoff to mm. see that she had a low self-image, mm. you know. Anyway, um, now a second thing we could turn to is this. Can I ask you one question sure. before we turn to that? Sure. I, at the risk of sounding crazy, I'm going to share with you, when you're talking about pigeons, I had this memory. Now, Memories, eyewitness testimony, I know that they're fickle. Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, and it didn't happen this way. But I was in, uh, I believe it was, I was in Sydney, Australia. I was walking along. I had a little bread or something like that, and I saw some sort of like pigeon, and it, and it was near me, uh, kind of coming up to me, and it had one leg. I throw the... A little piece of bread. I kind of felt bad for it. Oh, this pigeon only has one, uh, one leg. This pigeon's going to get a little piece of bread for me. I throw the bread down. Down pops a second leg. It was just standing on one leg. And then I see it go over to another person and have one, <laughs> one leg up, wait for bread, and put its leg down. Now, is this... Because I know, I, and what I often do on this podcast, I talk with these uh, w wonderful minds that share these amazing studies, and then I butcher them, and I make a fool out of myself. But, but I try my best to remember this stuff. And, uh, and I tell myself I have a, 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 my podcast in, is in the top half of podcasts. Um, but there's some work with teaching pigeons kind of almost superstition and where if you teach a pigeon kind of a Pavlovian, it does this, it gets a reward and you teach it that and it learns like, Hey, I push this button, I get a reward. Then one day you throw a reward in out of nowhere 
It goes, what was I doing right there? Was I moving my wing in a certain way? And now it kind of has this tick for a while. Do you think that the pigeon perhaps evolved, or not, not evolved, developed over the course of its life, this tick because one day it was like up scratching its body with the with its leg and someone threw a piece of bread down and was like, hey, I guess that works out for me. And I wonder how much self-deception could evolve like that. If you have a baby that cries a lot and you come running every time that it cries and it gets the reward, it maybe learns to, uh, to cry more. Or if you have a dog that whines more, or if you have a dog that that sits still and that's when you give it the reward maybe it becomes more of a still dog do you think that there's any way that self-deception could develop in an individual and and that's how you could kind of tune into your environment and what uh what like if say say i wake up on the right side of the bed one day and i think i look in the mirror and i go how am I? Am I a good looking man? Am I under average? You know what? Today, I'm better than average. And that confidence that I walk out with gets rewarded. More people talk to me, more ladies hit on me. And so then I, that day that I thought of myself as a better looking person, maybe that gets rewarded in kind of a Pavlovian way. And I remember that. And then I build that over time. And then certain days I wake up, I'm like, man, I'm just the best looking guy in the world. And then I walk out and people are like, who's this arrogant prick? And I get, and I get penalized for that. And that's how we kind of find that, um, that medium. And, and I, I know evolution obviously is a, is a large part is enormous, uh, enormous part of of setting up the foundation. Uh, but but I'm just talking kind of how an individual zeroes in on what is the appropriate amount of say self esteem, whatever that necessarily is in a given individual. Do you know what I'm saying about what I'm trying to say? Yes, I think I do, but I also know that I don't have anything useful to say about it. Fair enough. Um, the logic you give is is certainly plausible and sensible that we adjust and we use feedback in in a rational way to adjust up or down. But the, but one problem I got is I'm 75 now and my ability to, I discover my ability to focus back on things that I used to think more about uh, is, is, Strictly limited, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, you know, I could talk to you more about work. I am now interested than Let, I could talk to you about that. How How about this? Uh, th- this is here's here's my number one question that I've been dreaming about asking you since I figured out that uh, since I found out that I was able to coordinate this with you, and I was going to be able to sit down here with you. Here it is. This is the most exciting uh, that that I've been today. What have you been working on lately? What have, what have you been interested in? I'm familiar with your work. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I've, I've, I've read your books. And that's what I want to know is what you've been uh, tinkering with lately. Well, thank you, Shane. But let me, if, if I can insert something that I was about to before. Sure. Uh, regarding self-deception. So one is this, is this tendency for us to put ourselves in the top half of a distribution and you can run with that in various directions. The other is this, if the basic logic is we self-deceive to hide deception, then you turn around and say, well, how do we spot deception? And 
there we've finally done a little bit of work. You know, the the literature was disappointing on this for for decades. A very little work on how we actually spot deception, ongoing deception. Uh, now we know that there are some cues, just a few, that work a lot, and others work, but on a contingency basis, and others, God knows whether they work or not. So here's one that works a lot, and that's tone of voice. And the reason we think it works a lot is because uh, you're you're typically anxious or nervous when you're lying. I like to imagine it's with your mate, and you're lying about you know where you just were, and it can be minor. Mm-hmm. It can. It doesn't have to be that you were out with another woman or another man or whatever. It could be as simple as the fact that you've stopped and had two beers with your friends and your wife doesn't like you uh, drinking with your friends. She wants you to come straight home. So you have a little canned lie for her. Uh, Shane's uh, carburetor wasn't working, so we stopped to help and... <laughs> He went out and got a six-pack while we fixed his carburetor. Sure. That's why I've got beer on my breath. <laughs> so anyway. That's a good, that sounds like one you've used before. That, ah! was, a, that was a good one. <laughs> and I don't know shit about carburetors. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. Uh, I, I like that. But in any case, if you imagine you're telling a lie where you're nervous about being detected, and then you're apt to be more nervous, especially when you get to the key word. Mm. And nervousness is accompanied by a tightening of the diaphragm, and a tightening of the diaphragm tends to send your voice up. Mm-hmm. So we've now got some good data that you are slightly higher pitched when you're lying, but especially when you hit the key word. Uh-huh. So I'll give you an example. This is a Jamaican woman, and this is, again, eight to ten years ago, which probably means it was three months ago, but I like to put these things in the past. Sure. No, this was uh, at least five or six years ago. Well, no, it was more like seven or eight years ago. Never mind. So she says to me, you think I'm there with Sherry. So when she hits Sherry, not only does her voice go up, but she loses it, and it f- and it goes up two octaves. Uh-huh. So I said to myself, Sherry is, of course, a woman. So in other words, I'm accusing her of a lesbian relationship. So I said to myself, well, I did have a theory, and now I have one more data point, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that that one works. That that one actually works. Now, some others are kind of counterintuitive. For example, we we tend to say, "Oh, shifty eyes," and you know, because he's nervous. But there's a there's a certain kind of category of lie where it's just the opposite, where we're just like you and I right now. We're looking straight at each other's eyes <laughs> because if if um, there's a cognitive load, they call it when you're lying, because you got to come up with a lie. You got to remember it because mm-hmm. tomorrow you got to tell the same damn story or mm-hmm. else they're going to catch you that way. And cognitive load results in less eye movement mm-hmm. and less, uh, even uh, less hand movement. Uh, 
and uh, they proved this by having individuals uh, do a cognitive task while also adding numbers in their head. Mm-hmm. So that increased the cognitive load and and they shifted their eyes less. Mm. So some of these things are counterintuitive. All right, let's get it. You, you mean you had them? They, no, they exactly. Lied, they lied while, while doing a cognitive load test. Well, no, they, they, did, <clears throat> they did the cognitive load test separately to show that with cognitive load, you tend to move your eyes less. Oh, I see. Because it's like your brain is more concentrated. But then they showed that lying had the same element to it in some situations, mm. and they presumed it was because of the cognitive load. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are a bunch of different kinds of lies. Mm-hmm. Uh, a very brilliant psychologist, Steve Coslin at Harvard, uh, once sat me down at lunch and said, hey, Bob, listen, there's seven kinds of lies. And this was back when we were talking about the neurophysiology of <clears throat> neurophysiological correlates of deception. Mm-hmm. And he was saying they differ for each of them. So, for example, if it's cognitive load, you pause. And there's more uh, pauses, there's more fillers, uh, even without the cognitive load stuff. If we go back to the vo- pitch of the voice, but the other things that correlate with it is uh, verbally, uh, there are more pauses, there are more fillers, uh, uh, and... Um, and you have you use simpler uh, verbs, and they're more direct. Oh, and you don't add qualifiers, so you don't say, "Although it was raining, I walked to my office." No, you say, "I walked to my office." Whatever is the simplest goddamn story is what you want to come up with, because you gotta say it and you gotta remember it. That's why the police ask you, like, what the weather was like, or something like what that. What the what? What the weather was like, or something like that. If you're in an interrogation, they're asking for more details. That's a good point. That's a good point. And there are, you know, there are skillful ways, as as you know, of interrogating that'll make it more likely they're revealing someone uh, lying. Anyway, uh, so so I have all day, but I want to get you because I told you hey, now we've we've now passed an hour mark. We, you can have as much time as you want, but I I want to know about, no. about about the recent research if you don't mind. Just no, no, give, no. That's exactly what I want to do. Give, given me a, just a, a quick summary is is uh, as much time as you want. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's do that and let's call it a day. So, that sounds great. I appreciate your time very very much. Well. Um, and listeners appreciate it as well. We can, um, we'll talk in a moment about uh, uh, lunch. Sure. So, to be quite frank with you, Shane, as a, again, I'm 75 and I've, I've noticed myself slowing down in several dimensions. I'll spare you uh, the psychosexual dimensions, but um, mentally... I, I still think I can comprehend uh, difficult work, but I read less, and I I have less energy to do multiple tasks and so on. Anyway, I don't remember now how I got into it, but somehow about two years ago, I got interested in the problem of honor killings. Now, honor killings are these extremely ugly, counterintuitive murders in which you murder uh, 
typically your grown daughter, occasionally your grown son, and right at the age of maximum reproductive value, a future expected reproductive success, in other words, she's 17 or 18, she's a virgin typically, if, if we're talking about Muslim or Hindu society, and yet you slit her throat then. You've invested 17 years of parental investment, 18 years in her. Maybe you even have love in her, but you still slit her throat. So what the hell is going on? This reminds me, incidentally, of a lifelong interest I've had in male homosexuality because 45 years ago, if you wanted something that appeared to contradict evolutionary logic directly, it would be male homosexuality. Mm. Why is it there if if we're really selected to maximize our reproductive success. Uh, there's less of a problem with female homosexuality. But anyway, never mind that. So now we know there are a couple of genes involved, for sure, and we think we understand why there may be selection for such genes, sex antagonistic effects. The genes are good in females, but not so good in males. But anyway, uh, honor killings is even worse because that's killing off a child. So what I've, the basic argument is that it has to do with inbreeding, and these are the following facts that you should know. 65% of Saudi Arabia marriages are from between first cousins. 40% of Iraqi marriages are between first cousins. 40% of Pakistani marriages are between first cousins. And India, it depends. Uh, it's both Hindu and, and, and Muslim in, um, in India. And uh, it's the Muslims that go in for first cousin marriages. And they go in for a particular kind, fathers, brothers, child. Uh, the... Most common form of first cousin marriages across all cultures is cross cousin, father's sister's child or mother's brother. But parallel cousin, where it's both male, that comes out of Arabia, that comes out of uh, uh, Muhammad and Muslimism and so on. And it is more dangerous for women because it allows, allows two male patrilines to be aligned together and often the uncle is involved in the murder of the girl but in it, but and in the hindu case it's different there's inbreeding again but it has to do with within caste uh, marrying so let me take up the muslim case first in the muslim case let's imagine you really have 40 or 50 percent of of marriages, every effing generation are first cousin. That drives degrees of relatedness up. Mm -hmm. You start, you know, a single uh, first cousin marriage. Uh, you're related to the first cousin by an eighth. And uh, let's say from your standpoint, she adds uh, a child. That's an eighth times a half is a sixteenth you're getting through her relatedness, then you get a half through your own. So you're going from uh, one half to nine sixteenths or eight sixteenths to nine sixteenths. You're going up by one sixteenth. But if you keep it up, 
then you're continuing to rise every generation towards one. And the closer you get towards one, yes, the closer you're related to your own daughter. Now you may be related to her by 0.96, but you're related to your, your uh, nephews and nieces by 0.94. You're related to your cousins by 0.92. So it drives all the degrees of relatedness up to a similar high value, at which point any harm to them through reputation or whatever. Ah, wow. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. And what's the worst thing she can do, by the way, Shane? The worst thing she can do is not marry her first cousin. In other words, uh, outbreed. Ah. And because then you don't even get the... Now your daughter suddenly, instead of being related to you by... 0.98 is related to you by, uh, well, in, in, she's related to you by 0.98, but you're suddenly related to her child by, you know, 0.49 instead of, instead of, um, instead of 9.7 or 9.6. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And by the way, just a comment, and I don't care who hears it or gets mad about it. I lectured on this at Texas A&M, and I was shocked that I was later criticized for pointing out how often the victims of honor killings are beautiful. And I can show you 10 pictures, brother, and, and you'll agree with me. Almost all of them, you would say, now that's a good-looking woman. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because, just as a hypothesis, it's a hypothesis that they're better looking on average, and it's a hypothesis that the explanation is they're more independent since they're better looking, and they have more options, they're attractive to more men, and they're used to, you know, a sense of identity, mm -hmm. and so on. What's the key uh, explanation in the U.S. for Muslim honor killings? Acting to American. We have the strongest youth culture in the world, out of Hollywood and so on. If you came over here from Egypt or, hell, anywhere, uh, Guatemala, where, where you don't have the honor killing problem, when you were three or four years old, by the time you're 16, all you want to do is beep it a bop it a boop it a boo. You want your slit trousers. You want to act like an American teenager. Mm -hmm. And that, if your parents came from, from Pakistan, that may be anathema to them, right? So, by the way, Muslim honor killings continue when they leave Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Pakistan, so on. Hindus do not, because Hindu honor killings are, are caused by the village council, and the village council does not migrate. So when you migrate uh, as a Hindu to the U.S. or to Europe, there is no force there anymore for honor killings. Mm -hmm. What was I thinking of regarding that? Um, oh, Hindus are different. What they have is a, 
300 generations. They have a 3,000-year history of within caste endogamy. So, you know, a Hindu society starts with the Brahmins and ends up with the untouchables and has various castes in between, and you're not supposed to breed with any of the other castes. So that leads to within caste endogamy. You are only breeding with other members of your caste, which does raise degrees of relatedness within the caste, but they have an explicit rule against uh, sub-caste marriages. So they're trying to discourage, you know, the, the, the really close marriages but it's a, it's, a, it's a different system, but it still ends up with the same goddamn thing, and it's almost always violating the caste. Hmm. So if you marry up, they're going to try to kill you and, you know, the upper caste, and they'll try to kill her too hmm. for allowing you to marry up. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, uh, thank you. And thank you for your time, Robert. I thank really, you. really appreciate it. It was wonderful to meet you. And, uh, and thanks for your time, and thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people, and we'll talk with you next week. Next week on the show, first history professor on the show, author of at least co-authored around 30 books or something like that. It's a crazy number of books. Mary Wisner Hanks joins me in Milwaukee to talk a little bit about history. I uh, I just want to say to you guys, I, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. I hope that uh, you are making the most of it. I, I'm going back home for the holidays, spending some time with family can sometimes be a little awkward that extended family uh when you're the guy who uh talks about uh provocative subjects sometimes and sometimes uses profanity on a stage in public oh my goodness um so i have to navigate that (laughs) i imagine there's many of you that have to navigate much worse and i hope you do and uh, but i i do hope that you have the best time with your family, with your social group, whatever it is. I hope you have a lovely holiday experience. I know these can be stressful times and everything else. If you're looking for last minute gifts, check out Stand Up Science. Here's just the cities that I have coming up in January. Portland, Oregon, San Diego, LA, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, Chicago, Lansing, Michigan, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Royal Oak, Michigan, Madison, Wisconsin, Des Moines, Iowa, heading into February. We got, you see how this is going to be a bit of an undertaking for me. We got Iowa City, Minneapolis, Rhode Island, Boston, Newmarket, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine, Harrisburg, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Norfolk, Virginia, and uh, now we're in March, uh, heading to Raleigh, North Carolina, Greensboro, North Carolina, um, it looks maybe like Charlotte, Asheville for sure, Oakland, or Oak Ridge, Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, Kansas City, Missouri, uh, and we have more things we're just trying to work out the logistics on, but uh, this is hoping to make this my new life, is, is touring around with stand-up science. Uh, I'll still do solo stand-up stuff, but uh, stand-up science, I think, is right now the most... 
um, the most me that I have ever been, the most genuine project that I've ever uh, taken part in. Half scientists, half comedians, all fun stand-up science. Please check it out. Thank you for donating on Patreon, by the way. I don't know if you guys have been feeling a little more generous and have the holiday spirit, but my goodness, uh, <laughs> I I very much appreciate it. You know, the holiday holiday times are are tougher financially on on a lot of folks, including starving artists like myself. So it does not go unappreciated, and uh, I put it all I put it all to good use. Uh, I I don't uh, all my party days and everything else are behind me. I don't really have material possessions. I barely even have a I have a little studio apartment that I store a few belongings in and I dedicate my life to science outreach and doing this sort of thing. So all of your Patreon support helps so much and I appreciate that. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Music this week by Sam Goodwills.